Christ is risen. I'm laughing because I put this moment in my notes pretty late on this morning, and I wrote, Chris has risen. I am not a morning person, obviously, unless morning wants to get its act together and start at about 10 a.m. I saw an ad the other night for life-changing sleep hacks, how to sleep less and wake up more refreshed. I thought that sleep hacks were going to be more about how to find more time in your life to sleep, not about finding less time to sleep. This doesn't seem like much of a hack to me, but anyway, have you ever scared someone? Thank you, Pastor Mark. I used to think it was really funny to scare my grandmother. Her, I know, right? I was like five. But her name was Yuhu. She got that name because anytime she walked into one of our houses, she'd say, Yuhu. And we just naturally assumed that she was announcing herself. And so the name stuck. So I used to think it was so funny to scare my grandmother, Yuhu, this sweet little Romanian woman. And one time we were flying, we were traveling, I think we were coming back from Florida or something, and I found in one of these airport shops a rubber snake. And this is when I learned about phobias, because I found out my grandmother is deathly afraid of snakes. And so here I am, this five-year-old kid, chasing my grandmother through the airport with this rubber snake as she runs terrified away from me. And my dad finally said, you know, maybe we need to stop scaring Yuhu because you're going to give her a heart attack. And so then I was deathly afraid of scaring anybody because I took this very literally. I didn't understand the figure of speech like, oh, you're going to give me a heart attack. So I'm thinking that my grandmother's literally going to keel over and die the next time I pop out of a cabinet or something. So I have a daughter. Her name is Eleanor, and she's four years old. And I've started to startle her for some reason. Um, not in a scary, like, oh, what are you doing here? But she's just finding me in places she won't, does, isn't expecting me to be. So she walks into a room, and I'm laying on the couch, and she just doesn't happen to look at the couch, right? And so then I say, hey, Bear, what are you doing? And it scares her because I'm in places that she's not expecting me to be. And I wonder if this is what the disciples were experiencing in these first days post-resurrection. That Jesus, this sort of peekaboo Jesus that we experience, he just starts appearing and popping up in places that we don't expect him. Our gospel text this morning from Luke 24, it's picking up sort of in the middle of a story. And what has just happened is we have these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them. They don't recognize him. There's this very curious text that says he prevents them from recognizing him. And he travels with them. He's explaining the scriptures to them. And there's this curious moment where they get to where they're going, and the text tells us he pretends as if he's going to keep going. So they ask him to stay with him, with them, and he comes in, and they find something to eat, and he takes bread at the table, and he breaks it, and their eyes are opened, and they recognize him. And then as soon as they recognize him, he disappears. So these two disciples, they run back to Jerusalem to the rest of the disciples, and this is where our text picks up today. 
that they're in the room and they're explaining to the other disciples what has just happened to them, that they've just had this crazy moment where they're traveling with this person. And in the moment that Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it, their eyes were opened. And as they're explaining all of this to them, Jesus appears again. I wonder if this is what happens to us all the time. That Jesus just suddenly appears in the moments and in the places where we least expect it. In last week's lectionary text, we were supposed to address the story of Doubting Thomas. So thank you to Bishop Ed for coming in last week and kind of blowing that out of the water. Um, he actually took the text that I was preparing for this week, so calling an audible pretty late in the game here. But we have this story of Doubting Thomas. And in this moment, Jesus comes as his post-resurrection self, and he bears his wounds to his disciples. His nail-pierced hands and his feet and his side. Isn't it interesting that Christ retains the scars of his crucifixion? What if the reason that Christ retains his scars is that God respects our own traumas too much to forget them? What if God is less interested in making us forget our pain and more interested in wiping away every tear from our eye? See, I think too often we believe that if Christ were really present with us, if he were really here, that we wouldn't experience the pain. We wouldn't experience the doubts. We wouldn't experience the confusion. But God isn't interested in just fixing our wounds. He's interested in healing our wounds. And healings are always for a purpose. Healings are always meant for someone else. The healing of our wounds is actually a sign of the resurrection life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we see these words, Praise be to God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles, so that we can com comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. So I want to ask us a few questions today. What if your pain could actually bring about someone else's healing? What if your doubts could actually give rise to someone else's faith? What if your confusion could make way for someone else's hope? The text tells us that we are comforted so that we can comfort others. We are brought back to life so that we can bring life to others. And remember, only dead things come back to life. Maybe this is why we don't experience more resurrection in our lives. Because we're not dead enough yet. If you're sitting here today and you feel completely at the end of yourself, I have good news for you. Resurrection is on its way. I'm a millennial, which means that most of my friends have had some sort of crisis of faith. And one of the conversations that I've had too many times is how my friends have become disillusioned with their faith. And I say, great! Disillusionment is wonderful. This means you've lost the illusion of what you think faith and living a resurrection life actually is, I promise you, it's much better. 
Only lame legs are made to walk again. Only broken relationships can be mended. Only the dead come back to life. So a few thoughts that I want to share with us today. One is about the table. Another is about gratitude. And finally, about resurrection. We don't know exactly how many times Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection. John's gospel actually says twice that not everything that Jesus did in the days post-resurrection were recorded in this book. That somewhere there's more that we don't understand, that we've never seen before. And then he says again, the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written about him. But what we do know is this. Almost every post-resurrection story involves a meal and involves giving thanks. It involves a prayer of gratitude. A few weeks ago, we had our first Maundy Thursday service ever here at Sanctuary. And so thank you to those of you who came and attended, who braved the foot washing, because we did emphasize this moment of foot washing that evening. It was a really special time together. But historically, the reason Maundy Thursday is celebrated is because the institution of the table. Diana Butler Bass, a writer and theologian, she asks this question. We ought to ask ourselves, what if the table was God's purpose and the cross was Rome's violent disruption of that purpose? And that way, resurrection doesn't make violence redemptive. Instead, resurrection proclaims the table as good news. See, resurrection, it doesn't just proclaim that our sins are forgiven. Resurrection proclaims the table as an invitation. If the end purpose of faith and life in Christ is simply forgiveness, I'm sorry, but that's a boring story. Thank God for forgiveness. I'm so grateful to be forgiven, but we can't stop there. We take this forgiveness, we receive this forgiveness, and now we have to ask ourselves, now what? And the answer to that question is participation in the resurrection life. Resurrection announces a new world, one in which Christ himself prepares a table for us, even in the presence of our enemies. See, God doesn't let Caesar have the last word. God doesn't let the powers destroy the table. Had the erection of Christ never happened, we wouldn't have this meal. Or at best, it would be a simple commemoration of a thing that happened and remembering a life well lived. The resurrection means that this meal can actually become for us, in some mysterious way, the body and blood of Christ that he's actually present to us somehow in that moment. Just look. Where do we find Jesus post-resurrection? He returns to the dining room. He makes breakfast for his friends. By the way, on the road to Emmaus, isn't it interesting that Jesus acts as if he's going to go on? I wonder... What if the reason that Jesus acts as if he's going to continue is to remind his disciples the importance of hospitality? 
It's like Christ is resurrection. He has one conversation with his disciples, and he's like, guys, come on. We've been over this. Remember, the whole least of these conversation? You're not going to invite me in? You're not going to prepare a meal for me? So he pretends to go on. But we shouldn't wait for Jesus to ask for something to eat. If we really believe that Jesus is with the poor, with the hungry, with the imprisoned, why wouldn't we go to be with him? So instead, Jesus pretends to go on. Which leads us to these moments of gratitude. Giving thanks was a regular part of Jesus' ministry. In John 6, we read, A crowd of people gathered to hear from the one who healed the sick and had compassion on the sinner. Jesus began to minister to the crowd by comforting them and healing their illnesses. They were in a desert place, and the evening time quickly came upon them. No villages were close enough to prepare food for the large crowd, and seeing this need, Jesus gave thanks and used a boy's lunch to feed thousands. Seeing the need, Jesus gave thanks, not after the need was met. Again, before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we read in John 11, because Lazarus was such a close friend to Jesus and was a dear brother to Mary and Martha, when he died, they all deeply mourned his death. Four days after he passed away, Jesus stood before the cave which held his body and gave thanks to his father for hearing his prayer. He then commanded Lazarus to come forth, and miraculously, Lazarus rose from the grave. Christ's gratitude is mentioned in Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, sitting around a table, Jesus was surrounded by his disciples, and in just a short time, he would be nailed to the cross and separated from his father. Knowing such suffering was about to take place, he stood before those whom he loved and ministered, and he praised God by giving thanks. See, giving thanks is not just something nice that we should do. It's actually a marker of resurrection. Something about giving thanks to God seems to actually open up space in us for him to move in our lives in ways that we least expect it. In a heart of gratitude, there's no room for selfishness. There's no room for grasping or taking. There's only a posture of open-handedness, a posture that's ready to receive whatever it is that God has for us and what God wants to give us our good gifts. But those gifts can only be received in humility and in gratitude. This is why in a few moments when we come to the table, we don't come and take the elements. We don't come and grab them away from the people serving us. We come with our hands open, ready to receive the gifts. Gratitude is part of what it means to be a resurrection people. Which leads us to this point of resurrection. One thing we know about the life and death of Jesus is that you don't confront corrupt systems of power without paying for it. This is exactly what happens 
to Jesus. He was perceived as an enemy of the state, a threat to Roman power. And because he was a Jew, the Jewish leaders had plenty of incentive to deal with someone like this. Just imagine if a Jewish insurrectionist was allowed to go on unchecked, and the Roman Empire would love to make life more difficult for the Jewish people. So what do they do? They crucify him. Not as the result of an unfortunate misunderstanding. This is what happens when the powers that be are confronted with their rightful king. But we also know that death didn't get the last word in this story. Resurrection is God's announcement that God has not given up on the world. That something about this world, this physical place and space and time and people matter. I love in John's gospel when Mary arrives at the empty tomb and she's weeping and Jesus asks her, woman, why are you crying? And the text tells us, thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Thinking he was the gardener. How brilliant is this? Just think about the work of the gardener for a moment. Gardeners care and tend to the earth. They rightly order creation. They plant seeds in the dirt and cover them and then care for them and protect them so that new life can spring forth. They pull out all of the dead. They prune back all of the old so that new life can spring forth. Of course she mistakes him for the gardener because this is how resurrection life happens. It's the seed planted by a kind word or taking the time to pray for someone, not when you get home and happen to think about it, but in that moment when you see the need by taking their hands and pulling them in and praying over people. It's being with people to show them your wounds, to be able to say, look, me too, and I can show you how to be healed. And these glimpses of good in the world, these are really glimpses of resurrection life. This means that every kind word, every fair business, and every fair trade, every work of art, every act of compassion, all of it belongs in God's world. And anything standing in opposition to the good, to the beautiful, the honest, the joyful, the peaceful, it can't stand. It won't last. These glimpses of resurrection, these are glimpses of the deepest and truest reality. There are some experiences that fill you with life and with hope. Babies being born. My wife is pregnant. She's... Uh, having a boy. We're having a boy. She's growing a boy physically inside of her body, which blows my mind. But and we have a lot of women in our community right now that are expecting new life, which is really exciting. So for those of you who have been pregnant or whose wives have been pregnant, you know there are these moments when this life inside your body starts to kick and move and wiggle, and you can feel it 
this is what resurrection life is like. That you feel these little bumps and these kicks and you go, something is going on. I don't know exactly what this looks like yet, but I know it's there. It's not just indigestion. There is life happening inside of my body. There are babies being born. There are these clear, concentrated moments of meaning and purpose. Those times when you think, yes, there is a purpose to all of this. When you hear your kid comfort a friend or do something selfless. When you watch a beautiful sunset or any time you've ever put your feet in the ocean. We have these moments, these glimpses, these blips of resurrection life. But then there are moments when the alarm goes off and you think, another day. There are moments when you drive to work and the whole time you're just thinking, what is the point? There are those moments when you read reports of violence and shootings and bombs are dropped and civilians are killed or children are washed ashore. And in those moments, what happens is that those good, true, moving, meaningful resurrection moments, they start to feel like the, the exception. They start to feel like escapes from how it really is. But resurrection is the opposite. Resurrection is the opposite. Resurrection is not about escape from how it really is. Resurrection is about engagement. And not just engagement, but enjoyment. What better way to honor the creator of all that is than by enjoying creation, participating in creation life, actively being involved in creating this new world that's being birthed. Resurrection says that these glimpses, these moments of beauty and joy, that these are the real thing, that these are a sign of how it really is, that this is actually the thing undergirding all of the other things, that no matter however bad it gets, in the end, it is in some difficult and hard-to-explain way temporary. That somehow in the middle of this world, there is a new creation being born, a new heaven and a new earth coming together that we are always catching glimpses of. That in Jesus' resurrection, he has brought about something new, something good, something you can trust. So whatever is holding you down, whatever feels like a chain tied around your ankle, that thing does not get to say the last word about you. See, sin is not the first word spoken about you, and it is not the last word spoken about you. At best, sin is the middle word spoken about you. Cornelius Platinga Jr., which is an amazing name, says this, that sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. And we know shalom to be the peace of God, the setting of everything as it should be, and who among us is not guilty of disturbing that peace? 
one of the interesting things in Scripture is that people are taught first who they are. And what we find is that our primary identity in the text is saints, not sinners. 1 John 3, the text that we heard this morning says, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. It goes on to say, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. But what we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him. Such a curious text. When he is revealed, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. See, the more that you know who you are, the more you'll know what to do. And the first word spoken about you is that you are created in the divine image of God. You are a dream come true. And the second word is that all fall short. That all sin, all of us have disrupted the shalom. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, this is the truest thing I've seen. That the final word has not yet been spoken about you. We do know that all sins have been forgiven in Christ. And because of that, we know that we are loved. We are restored. We are resurrected. We are reconciled. We are renewed. And we are redeemed. So in closing, try it. Try living a life that is open and accepting of the invitation to this table. A life that gets to participate and to partake in the life and joy and death and resurrection that is Christ's. Try living a life of gratitude that is first thankful and open-handed, refusing to live from a posture of grasping and taking, but always ready to receive all that God has for you. Try trusting that all of the good, it wasn't a blip in the system, it wasn't a glitch in the matrix, but actually a glimpse of the resurrection life. Because once you see it, and you feel it, and you experience it, and believe there is more where that came from, you'll start looking for more. And when you start looking for more, you will always find more. Because the reality is as close to you as your next breath. Remember, resurrection says that this life matters. That your personhood matters. That your traumas matter. So if you're here today and you need peace, maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're concerned about what's happening in the world. Maybe a family member got a bad diagnosis. Remember, those things don't have the final word about you. So instead, try practicing gratitude. You might be here today and you feel like an outcast, like you have yet to find a place or a people where you belong. The good news first is that you're in good company. But not only that, as we come and prepare to meet at the table, remember, this is the table, 
not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Come to the table. Amen.